We heard the music and stirring words of onward Christian soldiers as we entered the house used by the chapel of the Lagos, Nigeria, 4th Branch. The singers, 18 elders, two sisters, and one missionary couple were preparing for their zone conference. We were impressed by their bright, eager smiles and faces glowing with enthusiasm. The single missionaries had been called to serve from homes in Ghana, Sierra Leone, and Nigeria. The couple from Canada were on their second mission. We sang with conviction the opening hymn of the conference, Go forth with faith to tell the world of Jesus Christ the Lord. Bear witness He is God's own Son. Proclaim His wondrous word. Go forth with hope and courage strong to spread the word abroad that people of all nations are children of our God. Go forth with power to tell the world the gospel is restored, that all may gain eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. A few days earlier, I had presided at a state conference in Benin, Nigeria. The state had been created a year earlier and had grown by over 260 members, mostly families, during that period. The percentage of member families receiving home teaching visits in this large, sprawling city is well within the range of established stakes in developed countries, even though few families in Benin City own cars or telephones. Attendance at sacrament meeting in the new stake is high in spite of ongoing political turmoil and frequent public transportation disruptions. Nearly 50 percent of stake members were present at the Sunday morning session of state conference. A well-trained choir sang with joy the hymns of Zion. Comparable levels of participation and dedicated, competent leadership are evident wherever the Church is established in sub-Saharan Africa. Africa is truly seeing the dawning of a brighter day. The first stake on the continent was created in South Africa in 1970. There are now five stakes in that country. The Johannesburg Temple was dedicated in 1985. Five additional stakes have more recently been organized in Nigeria and Ghana, the first a mere decade after the 1978 revelation on the priesthood. Over 50 districts of the Church are growing in Africa under inspired local leadership. The Church is authorized to do missionary work in 26 of the 44 countries included in the Africa area. Growth of the Church in Africa moves forward deliberately and steadily according to inspired design. Altogether, there are 80,000 members, 12 missions, 10 stakes, and 425 wards and branches. The number of baptisms during 1993 totaled over 9,000. Even greater numbers of baptisms would be possible if that were the sole measure of success. However, we are anxious that each of our African brothers and sisters be remembered and nourished by the good word of God. The Church, therefore, proceeds in an orderly and planned fashion. Efforts are focused to create centers of strength. The goal is to establish deep pools of leadership that will become the foundation for future Church expansion. 
Missionary work is concentrated geographically around existing chapels. Buildings are sited for occupancy by two or more church units. The missionaries concentrate their efforts on converting families and future leaders. Major attention is given to training local leadership, which is made easy because members in Africa are eager to be taught and quick to learn and abide by gospel principles. Nearly half of the 960 full-time missionaries serving in Africa are Africans, and the number is growing. Retired couples from the United States and Canada play a significant role, unselfishly leaving behind home, children, and grandchildren. These devoted couples are ministering angels to grateful, loving people, finding, testifying, baptizing, and above all else loving are duties eagerly assumed by the missionary couples who truly comprehend what retirement can be. These couples also provide deeply appreciated gifts of literacy, better health, and humanitarian service to members and non-members. Rich and eternal are the rewards as these couples nourish and carry in their arms and upon their shoulders the true-seeking people they are called to bless. Sacrifice may be required. Discipleship is not always easy, but life is never the same for a couple who have tasted the sweetness and joy of missionary service. Otherwise, why do so many return for second and even third missions? More couples are urgently needed in Africa and elsewhere. My brothers and sisters who are retired or approaching retirement, please prayerfully consider the rich blessings that flow from missionary service. If you should bring, save it be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy in the kingdom of my Father. When the Church was still in its infancy, the Prophet Joseph Smith stated, our missionaries are going forth to different nations. The standard of truth has been erected. The truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear till the purpose of God shall be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say the work is done. End quote. Yes, in spite of challenges, the work of the Lord moves forward steadily in Africa. I am humbly grateful for my calling as a seventy, and I rejoice in this opportunity to serve. I love the people of Africa. I am thankful for the sweet companionship of my wife and for the faithful prayers of my children and their families. Brothers and sisters, I know that my Redeemer lives and is the Savior of the world, that this is the only true and living Church upon the earth, and that President Howard W. Hunter is a prophet of God, and to this I bear solemn witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I, like many of you, take delight in watching the extraordinary performance of outstanding athletes on the field of competition. 
It is always a thrill to see the fulfillment of thousands of hours of practice, dedication, and sacrifice manifest through an unusual play, a last-second touchdown pass, a game-winning goal, or pressure-filled free throws. It always amazes me to see a basketball player step up to the free throw line and consistently, shot after shot, pressure upon pressure, calmly put the ball through the hoop, all net. Last year, Jeff Hornacek, after joining the Utah Jazz in midseason, hit 33 consecutive free throws, a Jazz season record. He was shooting with great confidence. I am interested in free throw records because I believe I also set a free throw record in high school, unrecorded, but a record that I believe would stand even today. It was in a game between my alma mater, Preston High, and Malad High in Idaho. It was played in the old Malad High School gymnasium in 1954. Early in the game, I was fouled in the act of shooting and was awarded two foul shots. I calmly stepped to the free throw line, set my toe about one-eighth of an inch from the line, and did my best imitation of my then basketball idol, Bob Cousy, by bouncing the ball twice, spinning it in my hands, taking a deep breath, and shooting. It was a pretty good imitation until I released the ball. <laughs> I missed both shots. A few moments later, I was again at the foul line going, the, going through the same established routine. To my despair, I missed again twice. As fortune would have it, we were only into the game six or seven minutes, and I was at the line missing my sixth and seventh foul shots. As I approached my ninth and tenth shots, I noticed that the basket, which was regulation size at the beginning of the game, was in some magical way beginning to shrink. <laughs> Each time I came to the line, it got smaller and smaller. My confidence wasn't bolstered much as I saw images of distress in the faces of my teammates <laughs> and expressions of calm glee and a twinkle in the eyes in my opponents each time I came to the line. By my 15th miss, my arms and legs were frozen stiff. And I could see the basket getting so small that even a softball wouldn't pass through it. When I approached the line to miss my 18th consecutive free throw, the basket seemed about the size of a golf hole, and I knew that even Bob Cousy would not stand a chance. I was not shooting with much confidence. Thankfully, the buzzer, final buzzer sounded, and my record ceased at 18 consecutive misses, a record not easily achievable, and one I doubt any of you sports enthusiasts have ever witnessed. As I left the court, my confidence was devastated, and ahead of me was the frightening task of getting ready to face the foul line again in an upcoming game. My challenge was not so much related to foul shooting as it was confidence. I am fully aware that when Jeff Hornacek was establishing his record, each time he approached the line, he was full of confidence, and the basket, in its magical way, was getting larger and larger.
Confidence, the big difference. As recorded in the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 45, the Lord tells Joseph Smith during his hour of deep despair in Liberty Jail, Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon, the souls, upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. What a wonderful promise for us, bearers of the priesthood, confidence in the presence of God. Each of us present in this great body of the priesthood have been called and ordained of God. We are his emissaries and have entered into a holy covenant with him to honor and magnify the priesthood. And this becomes our most important and sacred assignment on earth. I repeat, our most important assignment on earth is to honor and magnify the priesthood. It is more important than hitting crucial free throws. It is more important than catching a touchdown pass or kicking goals. It's more important than being accepted by your peers. It is more important than closing on a vital business transaction. Every time we use the priesthood, whether by assignment or through voluntary acts of service, it is as though we are stepping up to the file line. Every time the priesthood is tested by temptation or trial, it is as though we are stepping up to the file line. The hits and the misses that have preceded the moment of testing have a great bearing on how we will perform the next shot. Our spiritual confidence is largely determined by our prior spiritual successes and, unfortunately, by our prior spiritual mishaps. Our prior choices will greatly influence on how our spiritual basket will look, large or small, the next time we are at the line. We cannot say we will sow a few wild oats in our youth or that we will just dabble a little around the fringes of sin. There are no fringes of sin. Every act, good or bad, has a consequence. Every good act improves our ability to do good and more firmly stand against sin or failure. Every transgression, regardless of how minor, makes us more susceptible to Satan's influence the next time he tempts us. Satan takes us an inch at a time, deceiving us as to the consequences of so-called minor sins until he captures us in major transgressions. Nephi describes this technique as one of pacifying, lulling, and flattering us away until he grasps us in his awful chains from whence there is no deliverance. There are no fringes of sin. We are constantly shooting our foul shots, and the basket is either getting bigger or, as Satan would have it, smaller. Our confidence is either waxing strong in the Lord or waxing strong in Satan. When Nephi and his brothers were asked to go back to Jerusalem for the plates of brass, Nephi, because of his past experiences and preparation, saw the basket as very large. 
he knew he could do it. He said, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. On the other hand, Laman and Lemuel, who already had a history of complaining and neglecting their responsibilities, saw the basket as very small and thus rebelled. Laman and Lemuel did not have the faith or confidence that comes from righteous preparation. They did not believe they could make the shot. When David went to battle against Goliath, he was discouraged by Saul, who reminded him that he was just a child and was not able to go against this giant Goliath. David replied, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth." David had made his previous foul shots, and he saw the basket as very large. When Joseph Smith went into the grove of trees, when he began the translation of the Book of Mormon, and when he organized the church with just six members, his confidence was strong in the Lord. The Savior talked about teaching line upon line and precept upon precept. This is also how we prepare ourselves and to magnify our calling, act upon act and deed upon deed. Each good act makes the basket larger and prepares us to further magnify our callings. When you young Aaronic priesthood bears administer and pass the sacrament worthily and reverently, the view of the basket becomes a little larger, as does your confidence in the Lord and your ability to act in righteousness. For those of you who have withstood so-called minor temptations, your ability to overcome Satan in the moments of major testing becomes easier. For those of you who have developed a relationship with your Heavenly Father and the Savior, through scripture study and prayer, your basket is large and your confidence waxes strong. I am acutely aware that each of us sees our own basket as a different size. Some may feel as though they are on a string of 18 consecutive misses, and the basket they are now shooting at is very diminished. I have known men young and old, whose previous decisions or actions have caused them to lose confidence in themselves and in the Lord. It was as though their arms and legs were frozen stiff, and the task of breaking the cycle of sin or failure seemed almost insurmountable. But a true understanding of the Savior's mission lets us know that through true repentance our baskets can be restored to regulation size. Every wise choice, every responsible exercising of the priesthood, and every act of service enhances our confidence in the Lord. Brethren of the priesthood, let us hit our foul shots. Let's do our duty every single time we step to the line. 
that our confidence may wax strong in the presence of God, that the doctrine of the priesthood may distill upon our souls as the dews from heaven. For we are the priesthood of God. Uh, this I humbly testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Present tonight are many young men who hold the priesthood of God. Some of you look forward to being a missionary when you're older. Others are planning to go soon. Still others have completed missions and are seeking an eternal companion. I am sobered by the realization that some of you will not reach these worthy goals because of other choices you are making now. I'm grateful this is a private priesthood meeting, for I've felt impressed to treat sensitive yet important matters. While they apply to all present, I particularly want to talk with you young men. I will speak as though you and I were alone in a private interview and no one else could hear us. My purpose is to help you learn how to make the right choices that will help you develop strong feelings of self-worth. You'll have confidence to do right and overcome strong negative peer pressures and bad influences. As a young boy, I felt that some things I heard discussed by others at school about private parts of the body were wrong. Yet I wasn't really sure how wrong or why they were wrong you may have similar feelings, since in tonight's setting you cannot ask me anything. I will use some of the confidential questions most frequently asked by youth I have met across the world. I will answer them by what I've learned from the scriptures and the prophets. You then will have clear standards from which to make choices. I pray that as we talk, the Holy Ghost will let you feel the truth of what is said. I know that as you listen and think of how our interview applies to you, there will come impressions regarding what to do about it in your own life. Question. Could you give us some help about resisting peer pressure? Why do some people do things that are wrong, then brag about how much fun they're having? When I don't participate, they make me feel stupid because I won't do it. Answer. You can't please God without upsetting Satan. So you'll get pressure from those he tempts to do wrong. Individuals who do wrong want you to join them because they feel more comfortable in what they're doing when others do it also. They may also want to take advantage of you. It is natural to want to be accepted by peers, to be part of a group. Some even join gangs because of that desire to belong, but they lose their freedom and some lose their lives. One of the hardest things for you to recognize is how truly strong you already are and how others silently respect you. 
We have great confidence in you. You don't need to compromise your standards to be accepted by good friends. The more obedient you are, the more you stand for true principles, the more the Lord can help you overcome temptation. You can also help others because they will feel your strength. Let them know about your standards by consistently living them. Answer questions about your principles when you're asked. But avoid being preachy. I know from personal experience that works. No one intends to make serious mistakes. They come when you compromise your standards to be more accepted by others. You be the strong one. You be the leader. Choose good friends and resist peer pressure together. Question. How do we keep bad thoughts from entering our minds? And what do we do when they come? Answer. Some bad thoughts come by themselves. Others come because we invite them by what we look at and listen to. Talking about or looking at immodest pictures of a woman's body can stimulate powerful emotions. It will tempt you to watch improper video cassettes or movies. These things surround you, but you must not participate in them. Work at keeping your thoughts clean by thinking of something that's good. The mind can only think of one thing at a time. Use that fact to crowd out ugly thoughts. Above all, don't feed thoughts by reading or watching things that are wrong. If you don't control your thoughts, Satan will keep tempting you until you eventually act them out. Question. Why is the law of chastity important? Why is sex before marriage wrong? Answer. Fundamental to the great plan of happiness and central to the teachings of the Savior is the family. A new family begins when a man and woman make sacred marriage vows and are legally bound together to become husband and wife father and mother. The perfect beginning is through sealing in the temple. With marriage, they commit the best of themselves to be absolutely loyal to each other and to invite children to be nurtured and taught. The father assumes his role as provider and protector, the mother her role as the heart of the home with her tender, loving nurturing influences. Together they strive to instill in themselves, in their children, principles such as prayer, obedience, love, giving of oneself, and the quest for knowledge. Within the enduring covenant of marriage, the Lord permits husband and wife expression of sacred powers in all their loveliness and beauty, within the bounds he has set. 
one purpose of this private, sacred, intimate experience is to provide the physical bodies for the spirits Father in Heaven wants to experience mortality. Another reason for these powerful and beautiful feelings of love is to bind husband and wife together in loyalty, fidelity, consideration of each other, and common purpose. However, those intimate acts are forbidden by the Lord outside the enduring commitment of marriage because they undermine His purposes. Within the sacred covenant of marriage, marriage, such relationships are according to His plan. When experienced any other way, they are against His will. They cause serious emotional and spiritual harm. Even though participants do not realize that is happening now, they will later. Sexual immorality creates a barrier to the influence of the Holy Spirit with all its uplifting, enlightening, empowering capabilities. It causes powerful physical and emotional stimulation in time that creates an unquenchable appetite that drives the offender to ever more serious sin. It engenders selfishness and could produce aggressive acts such as brutality, abortion, sexual abuse, and violent crime. Such stimulation can lead to acts of homosexuality, and they are evil and absolutely wrong. Sexual transgression would defile the priesthood you now hold sap your spiritual strength, undermine your faith in Jesus Christ, and frustrate your ability to serve Him. Consistent, willing obedience increases your confidence and ability. It produces character and allows you to face difficult challenges and overcome them. It qualifies you to receive inspiration and power from the Lord. Question. They always tell us we shouldn't become sexually involved, but they never tell us the limits. What are they? Answer. Any sexual intimacy outside of the bonds of marriage, I mean any intentional contact with the sacred private parts of another's body, with or without clothing, is a sin and is forbidden by God. It is also a transgression to intentionally stimulate these emotions within your own body. Satan tempts one to believe that there are allowable levels of physical contact between consenting individuals who seek the powerful stimulation of emotions they produce, and if kept within bounds, no harm would result. As a witness of Jesus Christ, I testify that is absolutely false. Satan particularly seeks to tempt one who has lived a pure, clean life to experiment through magazines, video cassettes, or movies 
with powerful images of a woman's body. He wants to stimulate appetite, to cause experimentation that quickly results in intimacies and defilement. Powerful habits are formed which are difficult to break. Mental and emotional scars result. When you are mature enough to plan seriously for marriage, keep your expression of feeling to those that are comfortable in the presence of your parents. To help you keep these sacred commandments, make a covenant with the Lord that you will obey them. Decide what you will do and will not do. When temptation comes, do not change your standards. Do not abandon them when circumstances seem to justify an exception. That is Satan's way to hurt you by making it seem that sometimes God's law does not apply. There are no exceptions. Question. Before you're married, how far is too far to go? If it's with your girlfriend, answer. Before marriage, there can be no sexual contact with a girlfriend, fiancé, or anyone else, period. While a commandment, that standard is for your happiness. That's why the Church counsels you to go in groups and not to date while you're young. Later, as you prepare for marriage, remember that true love elevates, protects, respects, and enriches another. It motivates you to make sacrifices for the girl you love. Satan would promote counterfeit love, which is really lust. That is driven by hunger to satisfy personal appetite. Protect the one you love by controlling your emotions to the limits set by the Lord. You know how to be clean. We trust you to do it. Question. How do you go about repenting after a sexual sin is committed? What sins should you tell the bishop? Answer. All of the sexual transgressions we have discussed require sincere repentance with a repentance participation of the bishop. Should you have done any of this, repent now. It is wrong to violate these commandments of the Lord. It is worse to do nothing about it. Sin is like cancer in the body. It will never heal itself. It will become worse unless cured through repentance. Your parents can help strengthen you. Then you can become clean and pure by repentance under the guidance of the bishop. He may seem to be busy or unavailable. Tell him you're in trouble and need help. He will listen. A youth in serious trouble said, I've done things I knew were bad. I've been taught they were ever since I can remember. I know repentance is a great gift. Without it, I would be lost. But I'm not ready to repent of my sins. Yet I know when I am ready, I can. How tragic. 
the thought of intentionally committing serious sin now and repenting later is perilously wrong. Never do that. Many start that journey of intentional transgression and never make it back. Premeditated sin has greater penalties and is harder to overcome. If there is sin, repent now while you can. I pray that as we have talked, you've had feelings to do better. You hold the priesthood of God. That is a sacred responsibility, also a singular privilege. You will be fortified in your determination to live righteously as you study the scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon. Listen to your parents and the prophet we have sustained today. Have faith in the Savior. He will help you. Remember, he said, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. But when you do not what I say, ye have no promise. Please stay morally clean. The Lord will make that possible as you do your part with all your strength. Jesus Christ lives, and he loves you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As I raised my arm this morning, I raised my voice this afternoon to gladly sustain President Hunter. He is a meek and special man. And as we've heard from two new apostles whom we sustained this morning and their testimonies this afternoon, I rejoice again as I do in two outstanding new 70s and in some special sister leaders. For some years, brothers and sisters, there has been an increasing and profound sense of existential despair in the world. This mortal hopelessness both reflects and affects much of mankind. Whether tribal or national, wars constitute the continued experience of 20th century man. A grumpy cynicism pervades politics in so many places on this planet. Holocaust, famine, pestilence, and tides of refugees have taken a terrible toll on human hope, with much of that toll coming from man-made, avoidable disasters. Causality can be assigned to one or another form of iniquity. No wonder, as the scriptures say, Despair comes of iniquity. Of course, many disagree over what constitutes sin, but surely they do not welcome the deepening of human despair. Some moderns do not lament the loss of traditional faith either, but surely they lament the further loss of hope and charity ever in such short supply anyway. Does hope really matter? Or is it merely an antique virtue? Without hope, what is the future of lubricating forgiveness among the human family? Without hope, why forego now in order to preserve precious resources for future generations? Without hope, what will keep the remaining idealism?
from also souring into cynicism and thereby laying waste to governments and families, institutions already in such serious jeopardy. A coalition of consequences is emerging. As prophesied, the love of many waxes cold. Even those affectionately secure themselves can sense the chill in the air. The loss of hope sends selfishness surging, as many turn even more intensively to pleasing themselves. The diminished sense of sin diminishes shame, that hot, sharp spur needed for repentance. Shame is often replaced by the arrogance of those morally adrift, including strutting celebrities whose outer boldness camouflages their inner emptiness. Henry Thoreau correctly observed that unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusement of mankind. No wonder so much hollow laughter emanates from the lonely crowd. As societies trivialize traditional values, we witness a flow of immense suffering. We anguish, for instance, over what happens, including to the unborn who cannot vote, to children at risk, and we weep over children having children and children shooting children. Often, secular remedies to these challenges are not based on spiritual principles. To borrow a metaphor, secular remedies resemble an alarmed passenger traveling on the wrong train who tries to compensate by running up the aisle in the opposite direction. Only the acceptance of the revelations of God can bring both direction and correction and in turn bring a brightness of hope. Real hope does not automatically spring eternal unless it is connected with eternal things. What is it that ye shall hope for? Moroni wrote. Behold, I say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of Christ. From this triumphal act resulting in the eventual resurrection of all mankind so many lesser hopes derive their significance. Prophets have always had and taught ultimate hope in Christ. Jacob wrote, We knew of Christ, and we had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming, and also all the holy prophets which were before us. You and I can be repeatedly reassured concerning this grand hope by the Comforter, who teaches us the truth about things as they really are and really will be. Such hope constitutes the anchor to the soul. Such hope is retained through faith in Christ. In contrast, a resurrectionless view of life produces only proximate hope. Having ultimate hope does not mean we will always be rescued from proximate problems, but we will be rescued from everlasting death. Meanwhile, ultimate hope makes it possible to say the three words used centuries ago by three valiant men. They knew God could rescue them from the fiery furnace if he chose, but if not, they said, they would still serve him. 
Unsurprisingly, the triad of faith, hope, and charity, which brings us to Christ, has strong and converging linkage. Faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, hope is in His Atonement, and charity is the pure love of Christ. Each of these attributes qualifies us for the celestial kingdom. Each, first of all, requires us to be meek and lowly. Faith and hope are constantly interactive and may not always be precisely distinguished or sequenced. Though not perfect knowledge either, hope's enlivened expectations are with surety true. In the geometry of restored theology, hope has a greater circumference than faith. If faith increases, the perimeter of hope stretches correspondingly. Just as doubt, despair, and desensitization go together, so do faith, hope, and charity. The latter, however, must be carefully and constantly nurtured, whereas despair, like dandelions, needs so little encouragement to sprout and spread. Despair comes so naturally to the natural man. Souls can be roused and rallied by hope's reveille as by no other music. Even if comrades slumber or desert, lively hope performs like a reconnoitering scout out in advance of God's columns. There is hope smiling brightly before us. Hope caused disciples to go quickly and expectantly to an empty garden tomb. Hope helped a prophet to see rescuing rain in a distant cloud which appeared to be no larger than a man's hand. Significantly, those who look forward to a next and better world are usually anxiously engaged in improving this one, for they always abound in good works. Thus, real hope is much more than wishful musing. It stiffens, not slackens, the spiritual spine. It is composed, not giddy, eager without being naive, and pleasantly steady without being smug. Hope is realistic anticipation taking the form of determination, a determination not merely to survive but to endure well to the end. While weak hope leaves us at the mercy of our moods and events, brightness of hope produces illuminated individuals. Their luminosity is seen, and things are also seen by it. Such hope permits us to press forward even when dark clouds oppress. Sometimes in the deepest darkness there is no external light, only an inner light to guide and to reassure. Though anchored in grand and ultimate hope, some of our tactical hopes are another matter. We may hope for a pay raise, a special date, an electoral victory, or for a bigger house, things which may or may not be realized. Faith in Father's plan gives us endurance even amid the wreckage of such proximate hopes. Hope keeps us anxiously engaged in good causes even when these appear to be losing causes. Hope helps us to walk by faith, not by sight. This can actually be safer. When unaided spiritually, natural sight often shrinks from the odds. It is immobilized by improbabilities. Mauled by his moods and intimidated by his fears, 
the natural man overreacts to while hope overrides the disappointments of the day. Hope is particularly needed in the hand-to-hand -hand combat required to put off the natural man. Giving up on God and on oneself constitutes simultaneous surrender to the natural man. Daily hope is vital since the winter quarters of our lives are not immediately adjacent to our promised land either. An arduous trek still awaits, but hope spurs weary disciples on. Those with true hope often see their personal circumstances shaken like kaleidoscopes again and again. Yet with the eye of faith they still see divine pattern and purpose. By pressing forward, we can stand on what was yesterday's horizon, thereby drawing hope from our own experiences. Hence, Paul described how tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Therefore, we sing, we have proved him in days that are past. Hope feasts on the words of Christ written for our learning so that having all these witnesses through the comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. We sing, too, of how more holiness involves having more hope in his word. Genuine hope is urgently needed in order to be more loving, even as the love of many waxes cold, more merciful even when misunderstood or misrepresented more holy, even as the world ripens in iniquity, more courteous and patient in a coarsening and curt world, and more full of heartfelt hope, even when other men's hearts fail them. Whatever our particular furrow, we are to plow in hope without looking back or letting yesterday hold tomorrow hostage. Hope can be contagious, so we are to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason for the hope that is in us. If, said Brother Brigham, we do not impart knowledge to others and do good, then we will become contracted in our views and feelings. Despair is contraction at the end of its journey. Genuine hope gives spiritual spunk, including to deserving parents drenched in honest sweat from being anxiously engaged. Just as the leaning tower of Pisa is a persistent rebuke to architectural pessimism, so parental hope, by refusing to topple merely because of the gravity of the current family situation, is a repudiation of despair. Giving parents never give up hope. Though otherwise lively, hope stands quietly with us at funerals. Our tears are just as wet, but not because of despair. Rather, they are tears of appreciation evoked by poignant separation. They will change ere long to tears of glorious anticipation. Yet the emptiness is so real and so restless, it initiates a retroactive inventory of what is now so painfully missing. Doing so, however, while forecasting fullness and resplendent reunion. Humble hope helps us to improve 
by being sufficiently free of ego to ask, Lord, is it I? Submissive hope also readies us to give away all our sins because we have come to know Jesus who alone can take them. Gospel hope keeps us from being muted by being either a naive Pollyanda, Pollyanna or a despairing Cassandra. Voices of warning are meant to be heard, not just raised. Being blessed with hope, let us as disciples reach out to all who, for whatever reason, have moved away from the gospel of hope. Let us reach to lift hands which hang hopelessly down. Hope beckons all of us to come home, where a glow reflects the light of the world, whose brightness and glory defy all description. Jesus waits with open arms to receive those who finally overcome by faith and hope. His welcome will consist not of a brief loving pat, but instead of being clasped in the arms of Jesus. These primary children will soon sing about wishing that Jesus' arms had been thrown around them. They and we can hope and even know of such sacred things. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, this is obviously my first opportunity to stand before you. Since the events of June 23rd altered the course of my life and my service forever, that was exactly 100 days ago, and every one of those days I have prayed to be worthy of and equal to this sacred responsibility. Perhaps you can understand the immense personal inadequacy I feel and the deep, often painful, examination of my soul I have experienced. Obviously, my greatest thrill and the most joyful of all realizations is that I have the opportunity, as Nephi phrased it, to talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, preach of Christ, and prophesy of Christ, wherever I may be and with whomever I may find myself, until the last breath of my life is gone. Surely there could be no higher purpose or greater privilege than that of special witness of the name of Christ in all the world. But my greatest anxiety stems from that very same commission. A line of scripture reminds us with searing understatement that they which preach the gospel should live the gospel. Beyond my words and my teachings and spoken witness, my life must be part of that testimony of Jesus. My very being should reflect the divinity of this work. I could not bear it if anything I might ever say or do would in any way diminish your faith in Christ, your love for this Church, or the esteem in which you hold the Holy Apostleship. I do promise you as I have promised the Lord and these my brethren, that I will strive to live worthily of this trust, and I will serve to the full measure of my ability.
I know I cannot succeed without the guidance of the Master, whose work this is. On occasion, the beauty of His life and the magnitude of His gift comes to my heart with such force that, as a favorite hymn says, I scarce can take it in. The purity of His life, His mercy and compassion for us have led me again and again to bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great Thou art. I wish to thank my beloved wife, Pat, and our heaven-sent children for their prayers and their love, not only through these recent weeks but always. My wife has the purest faith and deepest spirituality that I know. Never in her entire life has she sought her own reward or pursued a selfish motive. As Mark Twain's Adam said of his Eve, so I say of her, wherever she was, there was paradise. And to each of our children I say, thank you for being the kind of person I prayed at your birth you would become. It is high privilege indeed when a father's best friends and noblest examples are his children. To my wife, my children, my saintly parents, and scores of others along the path of life who teach and serve and sacrifice to make us what we are, I express my undying appreciation. If I may, I wish to bear personal witness to two kinds of miracles which I have seen in the process of coming to this new office. One divine manifestation I have seen is the prophetic calling of President Howard W. Hunter, whom we had the privilege of sustaining this morning in solemn assembly. Because of the unexpected call which came to me in the first weeks of his prophetic ministry, I have had something of a unique vantage point from which to observe the miracle of his renewal, the profound evidence of God's hand on this chosen leader. In a rapid sequence of events that Thursday morning, President Hunter interviewed me at length, extended to me my call, formally introduced me to the First Presidency and the Twelve gathered in their temple meeting, gave me my apostolic charge and outline of duties, ordained me an apostle, set me apart as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, added a magnificent and beautiful personal blessing of considerable length, then went on to conduct the sacred business of that first of my temple meetings, lasting another two or three hours. President Hunter did all of that personally, and through it all he was strong and fixed and powerful. Indeed, it seemed to me that he got stronger and more powerful as the day progressed. I count it one of the greatest privileges of my life just to have observed the Lord's anointed engaged in such a manner. I include in that tribute President Gordon B. Hinckley and President Thomas S. Monson, who that day and always stand faithfully at President Hunter's side in the First Presidency, and President Boyd K. Packer, who leads the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Yes, I testify that God has worked His will on Howard William Hunter. He has touched his lips and spread the prophetic mantle of ordained leadership upon his shoulders. President Hunter is a miracle. 
one who has been fashioned, molded, refined, sustained for the service that he now renders. He is a most remarkable combination of velvet and steel, like every prophet before him, including Joseph Smith, Jr., and every prophet who will succeed him. President Hunter was called and foreordained in the grand councils of heaven before this world was. I bear solemn witness of that fact and the principle of church governance that it teaches. And age, age has nothing to do with it. Whether an incomparable 14-year-old in 1820 or an invincible 86-year-old in 1994, it is obvious that the number of birthdays doesn't count, that time is measured only unto men. President Hunter, we all bask in the glow of those candles on your cake. And we look, forward, we look forward to lighting yet another one in six weeks' time. I've also seen another miracle. That miracle is you, the great, faithful, but often unheralded body of the Church, who play your part in the ongoing saga of the Restoration. In a real sense, the wonder and beauty of this historic day would not, could not, be complete without you. Certainly I, for one, have taken great strength from you today, you who come from a hundred different nations and ten hundred walks of life, you who have turned away from the glitter and the glare and the vain imaginations of the world to seek a holier life in the splendor of the city of God, you who love your families and your neighbors, and yes, those who hate you and curse you and despitefully use you and persecute you, you who pay tithing with certainty even when you're uncertain about every other aspect of your financial future. You who send your sons and daughters on missions, clothing that child in better apparel than you now wear or will wear for the 18 or 24 months of sacrifice that lie ahead. You who plead for blessings to be bestowed on others, especially those in physical or spiritual distress, offering to give them your own health or happiness, if that would be something that God could allow you who face life alone or without advantage or face it with little success, you who carry on in quiet, in quiet courage doing the best you can, I pay tribute to every single one of you. And I'm honored to stand in your presence in your Church. I especially thank you for sustaining your leaders, whatever their personal sense of limitation may be. This morning, in common consent, you volunteered to uphold, or more literally, hold up, the presiding officers of the kingdom, those who bear the keys and responsibility for the work, not one man of whom sought the position or feels equal to the task. And even when Jeffrey Holland's name is proposed as the last and the least of the newly ordained, your arm goes lovingly to the square. And you say to Brother Holland through his tears and his nights of walking the floor, you lean on us. Lean on us out here in Omaha and Ontario and Osaka, where we've never even seen you and scarcely know who you are. But you're one of the brethren. So you're no stranger or foreigner to us but a fellow citizen of the household of God. You'll be prayed for in our family, and you'll hold a place within our hearts. Our strength will be your strength. Our faith will build your faith, and your work will be our work.
This church, the great institutional body of Christ, is a marvelous work and a wonder, not only because of what it does for the faithful, but also because of what the faithful do for it. Your lives are at the very heart of that marvel. You are evidence of the wonder of it all. Just 24 hours after my call as a general authority last June, as an apostle last June, I left for a church assignment to Southern California, where in due course I found myself standing by the bedside of Debbie, Tanya, and Lisa Avila. These three lovely sisters, aged 33, 32, and 23, respectively, each developed muscular dystrophy at age 7. Since that tender age, each has had her rendezvous with pneumonia and tracheotomies, with neuropathy and leg braces. Then came wheelchairs, respirators, and finally total immobility. Enduring the longest period of immobility of the three sisters, Tanya has been on her back for 17 years, having never moved from her bed during that period of time. Never once in 17 years has she seen the sun rise or set or felt the rain upon her face. Never once in 17 years has she picked a flower or chased a rainbow or watched a bird in flight. For a lesser number of years, Debbie and Lisa have also now lived with those same physical restrictions. Yet somehow, through it all, these sisters have not only endured, they have triumphed, earning young women personal achievement awards, graduating from high school, including seminary, completing university correspondence courses, and reading the standard works over and over and over again. But there's been one other abiding ambition these remarkable women were determined to see fulfilled. They rightly saw themselves as daughters of the covenant, offspring of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. They vowed that somehow, someway, someday, they would go to the house of the Lord to claim those eternal promises. And now even that has been accomplished. It was the most thrilling and fulfilling day of my life, Debbie said. I truly felt I was home. Everyone was so gracious and helpful with the innumerable and seemingly insurmountable arrangements that had to be made. But never in my life have I felt more loved or more accepted. Of her experience, Tanya said, The temple is the only place I have ever been where I felt truly whole. I've always felt I was a daughter of God, but only in the temple did I understand what that truly meant. The fact that I went through the experience lying horizontally with a respirator took absolutely nothing away from this sacred experience. Elder Douglas Collister, who along with the presidency and workers of the Los Angeles Temple assisted these sisters in making their dream come true, said to me, there they were, dressed in white, long black hair falling down nearly to the floor from their horizontal position, eyes filled with tears, unable to move their hands or any other part of their body except their head, savoring, absorbing, cherishing every word, every moment, every aspect of the temple endowment. Debbie would later say of the experience, I know now what it will be like to be resurrected. Surrounded by heavenly angels, and in the presence of God. One year after her own endowment, Debbie Avila made her way back to the temple again with staggering special arrangements and assistance 
to do the work for her beloved grandmother who had literally given her life in the care of these three granddaughters for 22 consecutive years without reprieve or respite or exception Sister Esperanza Lamelas cared for these three day and night. Virtually every night for 22 years she awakened each hour on the hour to physically turn each child so that she would be comfortable in her sleep and avoid the problem of bed sores. In 1989, at age 74, her own health now broken, she died, having given new meaning to the Prophet Joseph's invitation to waste and wear out our lives, doing all things that lie within our power for the benefit of the rising generation and all the pure in heart. The ongoing miracle of the Restoration, covenants, temples, quiet, unsung Christian living, the work of the kingdom done with worn hands, weary hands, hands which in some cases cannot be raised to the square, but which are surely sustaining hands in every holy and sacred sense of the word. Let me close. The 1650s were a terrible time in England. The Puritan revolutionaries had executed a king, and political life, including parliament, was in total chaos. A typhus epidemic turned the whole island into a hospital. The Great Plague, followed by the Great Fire, would turn it into a morgue. In Leicestershire, near where Sister Holland and I lived and labored for three magnificent years, there is a very small church with a plaque on the wall which reads, In the year of 1653, when all things sacred were either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley built this church, whose singular praise it is, to have done the best things in the worst times and hope them in the most calamitous. To have done the best things in the worst times and to have hoped them in the most calamitous. Those are lines I would use to praise the prophets and the faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ down through these years. Legions of the quietly heroic in every decade of the dispensation led by the Lord's anointed, whose arms can also grow weary and whose legs are sometimes weak. In the spirit of that legacy from those who have given so much, prophets and apostles and people like you, I pledge to press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. I pledge to take hold of that, for which Christ once took hold of me. I testify of him, the Redeemer of the world and the Master of us all. He is the only begotten Son of the living God, who has exalted that Son's name over every other, and has given him principality, power, might, and dominion at his right hand in the heavenly place. We esteem this Messiah to be holy, harmless, undefiled, the bearer of unchangeable priesthood. He is the anchor to our souls and our high priest of promise. He is our God of good things to come in time and in eternity and surely in striving to fulfill this new responsibility which has come to me. I shall forever be grateful for this promise. His spoken, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I thank him for that blessing upon us all. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.